You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. Well, it is a, it's a joy to be with you today and uh, here in Alberta. And um, is that me or is that, uh, all right, I, I think it's on, right? So um, just joy to be here. We, we were excited to come this way. I, I, we have felt bad for Tre- Trevor and uh, Heather to always fly our way, but I, I think from now on we should always have the retreat out here. Alberta is far more beautiful than Ontario. And uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I, I'm just trying to warm up, warm you all up to me. It's, uh, I apologize for everything Ontario's done that's bad. Um, <laughs> The good news is the Leafs lost last night, so that'll make some of you feel better. Um, but anyway, it's, it's a joy to be here, and uh, so much respect and love for your pastor and his wife and how God's using them and uh, this church here. And it's been a joy from a distance to watch and be praying for all of you as this church was planted and now to see the influence of multiple churches. And one of the areas God's working most in the GCC Association is here in the West. And that's really because of the gifting and calling and passion of Trevor and the way God is using him. And so we're grateful to be here. I'm thankful to stand in this pulpit and to open God's Word. And so I encourage you to open to two passages. We're going to start in Romans 8, and then we're going to spend uh, probably a little over half our time in Genesis 50. So the last chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 50, you can kind of get your finger there, but open up to Romans 8 where we'll begin our time together. And uh, most of you, if you've been in the faith very long or around church very long, you'll know the famous verse in Romans 8, Romans 8, 28, for God causes all things to work together for good, right, for those who love the Lord. And so uh, and the, we, 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 we say that verse, we repeat that verse for people. Um, let me get accurate in the ESV, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And sometimes somebody may have said that to you and it didn't encourage you because it perhaps wasn't said in the best way at the right time and maybe the right attitude, but those are comforting words for many, many people. And uh, I just want to explain a little bit more the context around those words because that's a promise from God to all of us. Then I'm going to take you to the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8.28. And so here we have this idea of God causes all things to work together for good. And you might say, well, there aren't good things happening in my life. Well, there's some qualifiers here, and there's some explanation of what he means. First, he says, God doesn't cause all things to work together for good for everybody. He says, for we know that for those who love God, for those who love God, and we don't just mean in a generic sense, you'll run into people all over the place, I love God. He's not talking about that. It's those who are born again, those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have repented of their sin and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. And Paul describes them in chapter 8 as he just kind of walks through it. He says there's no condemnation in verse 1 for those who are in Christ Jesus, who have had their sins paid for by Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. He talks about those who are live in the Spirit and have their minds set on the things of the Spirit in verse uh, six or five or six there. And he talks further about Christ, although our body's dead, that our spirit is alive because of the righteousness of Christ. 
He talks about how we, we can, we've been adopted and we can call him Abba Father. And the Spirit, his Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and we're fellow heirs with Christ because of our salvation in Christ. He talks about how he doesn't consider the sufferings of this present time. They're not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. And so we have a great hope for what is coming in the future. Even though we groan as creation groans, he said, we also ourselves are groaning and, and waiting for the redemption of our bodies and the coming of the Lord Jesus. And he also says, even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us, uh, praying perfectly according to the will of God. So all of that sort of helps us as we come into verse 28 to understand those who love God. Even after that, he talks about those who have been predestined according and called and, and justified. And those who are saying who've been called and justified will be glorified. And, and he talks about how nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so this whole concept and context here is for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you're in Christ Jesus today, I want to tell you that all things work together for good. Now, you may still be saying, you haven't seen my life. That's just not true in my life. Well, we need to qualify the idea of good because that's a relative term. And Paul actually qualifies it for us, I think, right in the context. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. In verse 20, for those who are called according to his purpose... For those who he foreknew, he predestined. That's just another way of saying those he's called, those he's saved, those who God has poured his love upon in salvation through Christ. And then here's the key phrase, to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he means good. When he says all things work together for good, he doesn't mean he's going to take all your problems away. He's going to take all your trials away. He's going to heal every relationship. He's never going to cause any, have any uh, illness or any disease to come into your life. You're always going to be singing and skipping through life as a happy person. That's not what he means, although many interpret it that way in these days. That God should take the stress and the trials and the loss and the suffering and even the enemies out of my life. God promised that he would work everything for good. No, 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 understand, when he says everything, he'll work it for good, he means he'll work everything to conform you to the image of his son. That's what's good. That's the ultimate. Peter said, be holy, for I am holy. He's quoting God there, and, and, and God's in this process of sanctifying us. When you're saved, you're justified. You're standing before God at the moment of your salvation is none of your sin is held against you. It's all been paid for by Christ and you have received Christ's righteousness. So in your standing, you're justified. But now in your walk and talk, you need to become who you're declared to be in your standing. And that's the process of sanctification. And that's in the process where God's causing all the things that happen in your life and have happened for good. He's working those so that you would become more and more like Jesus Christ in your walk and talk, in your actions, in your reactions, in your words and in your thoughts. God's working everything for your good to conform you to the image of his son. That's so important to understand. He uses everything. Now listen, I mean everything. Some of you have had some horrific things happen in your life. And you're just sitting there thinking, there's no way God's going to use that for my good. Especially if it's new, fresh, recent. If it's wrecked you. If someone has wrecked you. You're saying there's no way in the world that evil could be used for my good. And God says, I give you a promise. I will use it 
for your good to conform you into the image of my son. And so now what I want to do is I just want to pray, and then I want us to now go back to Genesis because there's, in Genesis 50 is the equivalent of Romans 8.28. And it's the example of a man and how God used everything in his life for his good and for God's glory. So let me pray, and then we'll go back to Genesis. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, it's such a joy to be here and to be with my brothers and sisters, to do this privilege you've given us as your church, as your family, of worship in the word, of fellowship together, of exalting Christ in our singing, in our praise, in our worship, of opening your word and hearing from you. And so, Father, I pray now, as we look at this example in the Old Testament, the last thing anybody needs here is to hear from a man. And so I pray that you would help us to unpack this passage, this verse, from this living and active word, from the the scriptures which are inspired and authoritative and sufficient for all that we need. And so I pray now your Holy Spirit would speak to each one personally, illuminating the truths in your word, encourage and strengthen this day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Genesis chapter 50. And uh, if you know the story of Genesis, and you'll know the character here, his name is Joseph. And if you grew up in the church as I did, you would have heard many, many stories about Joseph. And Joseph was known for his famous coat of what? Many colors. And we have the story of Joseph. And the verse I want to spend most of our time unpacking together is, is, uh, is the 20th verse in chapter 50. And let me begin reading over verse 19. Joseph said to them, this is at the sort of towards the end of his, it's the end of his father's life and as, as the time in Egypt is going on, he says, he says to them, to his brothers, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, listen, here's this, you meant evil against me, but here it is, but God meant it for good. Now back up and just to get the context and remind you of the story, just go back a little bit to chapter 37 and just to remind us ourselves of what happened. And so Jacob had uh, two wives and two concubines, and through them he had 12 sons. And he had a favorite wife, uh, Rachel, and uh, she had trouble bearing children for a while, and then she had two, and so she had Joseph and she had Benjamin. And Jacob wasn't really wise in this, but he loved some of his sons more than others. And he loved Joseph and Benjamin more than the other boys. And we see in chapter 37 in verse 2, Joseph is 17 years old. And his brothers were sent out to take the flocks, and they would go out for weeks and weeks at a time and to bring the the sheep into other pastures and to fatten them up and help them grow. And they're away for a while. And his father calls Joseph and says, I want to know how my other sons are doing and how my sheep are doing. So he sends them. And then verse 3, Moses tells us, Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now I'm not saying that's good. That's just a reality. That was their family dynamic. So Joseph goes out and he finds his brothers. Verse 4, when his brothers saw that his father loved him more than all his, uh, loved Joseph more than the rest of them, they hated him and they would not speak peacefully. So they have sibling rivalry happening in the family. And you remember, Moses reminding us as Joseph's heading out to find the brothers, Moses reminding us in verse 5, Joseph had had a dream. And you remember that? And he told his brothers a dream. And the sex says they hated him even more because he told them, in my dream, I saw that all of you are going to bow down to me. 
Now, that's not wise. If you're 17 today and you have older brothers, probably not the best thing to say to them, even if you think it's of the Lord. And so Joseph here probably shouldn't have said that, but he passes that on. And so they hate him even more. It tells us again in the text. Several times they hate him, they hate him. And so now he goes out to find his brothers. In verse 18, they saw him from afar. Now how did they recognize it was Joseph? Because he's probably wearing the coat of many colors, right? He has it later in the text here. And so they can see the coat coming. They see him. And what happens? They conspire against him to kill him. Now I have two older brothers. And when we were growing up, we didn't always get along. But I don't think they ever literally thought of killing me. Like, this is extreme. When, you, when the text says they hated him, they hated him. Now, these are the, the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel as well, and God worked in gracious ways in their lives in the years to come, but they decide to kill him. And then Reuben, the oldest brother, he's trying to sort of thwart that idea. He said, let's not take his life. And so the text says they throw Joseph when he comes up, they throw him into a pit, an empty well, and, and Reuben's off doing something else, and they sit down and they're trying to figure out what to do with this one they want to kill. And the text tells us in, in verse 25, the Ishmaelites are coming along. Some businessmen are traveling along on their way to Egypt. And, and, and so the Judah says to his brothers, what profit is if we kill our brother? <laughs> now, now Judah's going to recommend something different, but it's not great. They want to make some money off their brother rather than kill him. What profit is if we kill our brother? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let's not have on our hands, be upon our hands, his, his, his life upon our hands. So the, the Midianites, or Ishmaelites, they come along, and they sold him for 20 shekels of silver. So they probably divided up the money amongst themselves. And Reuben comes back, and he's upset because he finds Joseph's gone. But he goes along with their story. And so they say, what are we going to do? And so they took his robe, in verse 31, they took his robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped his robe in blood. And then they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father. And they tell a lie to their father. Now, now is this not evil? Is this not evil to Joseph? Is this not evil to, to, to the father? Now, this is just shocking, really. It's just absolutely shocking. They come up with this plan to sell their brother to, to, to foreigners who are traveling to, and they knew what happened in Egypt. Egypt had thousands and thousands of slaves. Egypt built their pyramids and everything on the backs of slaves. Uh, countless slaves died in Egypt. They just didn't care at all. They were evil. And what they were doing was evil. And then what they do to their father it goes on in chapter 37 to they say the father, Jacob, begins to mourn and puts on sackcloth. And then the text says this, all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. How evil is that? You're, you're feigning comfort for your father because he's mourning because his son has been killed by an animal when you know it's not true. You sold his son into slavery. It's just unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. When Joseph says in verse 20 of chapter 50, you meant it for evil, can we all agree they meant evil? They did evil to him? It was wicked what they did to him. His own family members was wicked what they did to him. But you know as the story goes on, Joseph's in slavery and he's in Potiphar's house and he starts to gain some favor with Potiphar and 
Potiphar puts him in charge of all of his house. Potiphar's a, a ruler in, in Egypt. And then Potiphar's wife wants Joseph to sleep with her, and he won't. And she accuses him of sexual assault. Potiphar gets mad, throws Joseph in prison. He's in prison for two years. And then there's the dream of the baker and the cup guy, and, and they have these dreams, and they get out. And then uh, Pharaoh has a dream, and nobody can tell the answer to the dream. And the one says, well, I remember a guy in prison who told me about my dream. And so uh, Joseph is called before Pharaoh, and he tells him the dream that there'll be seven years of plenty in Egypt and seven years of famine. And so uh, uh, Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of everything. And so now Joseph has this authority in the country and has this influence as they are putting uh, stores away for the famine that's to come for seven years. Then the famine comes, and then Jacob, because his family and his whole clan, there's a lot of them now, they can't have food, so he sends his sons to Egypt to get food, and they come before Joseph, and they don't know it's Joseph. You remember that whole story as they kind of go back and forth, and he recognizes them, they don't recognize him, and then finally they recognize him, and then he sends for his father and all of the clan to come to Egypt, and he takes care of them in Egypt, and then the father dies. So we come to chapter 50, you come to verse 15, and Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. Now they're in Egypt. Joseph is the second most powerful man in Egypt. Egypt's the most powerful country probably on the planet at that point. And Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, and they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back. Why? Why? We see this all the time today. People project their own character on other people. They always do that. If they're conniving, they think you're conniving. If they're lying, they think you're lying. Whatever it is, they project. And these men, that's kind of who they were. That was their character. And they had hated him and, him, him and done evil to him. And so now they're saying, when dad's dead and out of the way, now he's going to get even. It's payback time. He'll pay us back for all the, what? Evil. They know they did evil to him. And so what did they do? They sent a message to Joseph saying this. Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of, of your father. Now, the brother, perhaps Jacob did have that plan and did tell them to say that. I personally don't think that came from Jacob. Now, I don't have any reason to say that other than the character of the brothers. I kind of think if Jacob was going to concerned about that, that Joseph would get even, he would have called Joseph as he was getting to his last days and said, Joseph, I'm coming to the end of my life, and when I'm gone, I don't want you to get even with your brothers. They did evil against you. Uh, please forgive them. I think Jacob could have done that. He didn't do that. These brothers are all grown men with families. They could have come, if they was straight up sort of honest thing, they could have come and just said, Joseph, we sinned against you. Would you forgive us? They don't do that. I think they're still manipulating things and twisting things, showing their character. Just my personal opinion. I think they come up with this idea. It's still to misuse dad, to kind of use dad against Joseph and, and come up with this idea that, Joseph, listen, listen to us. Please, your, your father commands you to please forgive us for the evil we did against you. And what's interesting is the result of this message to Joseph is he we weeps, it tells us there, verse 17, Joseph wept when he spoke to them. His brothers also came and fell down before him, said, we're your servants. It's interesting, it doesn't tell us in the text the brothers wept. They should have. They've just received mercy upon mercy. 
Joseph is there weeping with the very ones who did such horrendous evil in his life. And then comes our verses. Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Now that right there should be instructive to all of us. When someone does evil against us, we want to take the place of God and we want to what? Get even. We want to make them pay. And Joseph has some good theology. Am I in the place of God? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And Joseph has some good theology here. And he says, I'm not going to take any action against you. And then he says this, for as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now I want to unpack that verse, and I just want to bring out three, three theological truths that I hope will help you, especially if someone has done evil against you. And in a room this size, for sure, there are many people who currently or in your past, someone has intentionally done evil against you. Perhaps it's not that. Perhaps it's just some struggle, whatever. Well, trust the Lord to apply this for all of us. So three points here. Three points, all right? Of theological truths from this, just un- this verse as we unpack it. Here's our first truth. People are evil and plan evil against us. People are evil. Not all people, but people are evil. We're all sinners, but some people, there's a reality in our world, some people are just evil, and they plan evil against other people. That's always been the case. Joseph is not deluded. He's not in denial about his brothers. You ever see on TV, you know, somebody's arrested for some horrific crime, and then there's the mother or somebody or a sister or somebody or or a brother, and they're on the news, and they're going, they're a really good person. That's not their character. No, they aren't a good person. That is their character. But so often we kind of live in this denial or delusion. And Joseph's not in delusion here. He says it straight out. You meant it for evil against me. He's not not denying anything. He's not saying you made a mistake. We can make mistakes. When, When somebody makes a mistake, what do we say? We say, I'm sorry. We're professionals at that in Canada. When I don't know about you, Trevor, when we lived in L.A., and we would, you know, run into people, and they say, you're from Canada. First, they say we had an accent, which I didn't hear. But secondly, they would say, you say you're sorry. In, in the States, if you bump into somebody in the supermarket or something, the Americans will say, excuse me. Us Canadians, we're apologizing for everything. We're professional. Isn't it true? I don't know in Alberta, but Ontario, always, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We're sorry for everything. And I'm sorry is easy to say. Listen, when you spill the milk, you say, I'm sorry, that was an accident, it was a mistake. When you bump into somebody in the lobby after, you say, I'm sorry, that was a mistake. I'm sorry is fine for mistakes. Parents, when you're teaching your children, I'm sorry is fine, that's proper for mistakes, for accidents. I'm sorry is not acceptable for sin. You can start with I'm sorry, but something needs to follow it. What needs to follow it? Will you, what? Forgive me. It's easy to say I'm sorry. We can say, I can say I'm sorry all day long. That's easy. When you need to say the words, will you forgive me, and then you name it, the sin. I don't know about you, but that doesn't come out as easy as I'm sorry. Because that's a humbling. That's an ownership place. And so Joseph here is not, he's not doing anything like the, the, you know, the denying their sin. He's not downplaying it. 
And even within sins, in the category of sins, there's different sins. Now, as I explain this, please know every sin is an affront against God. Every sin is a violation of the law of God. Every sin will condemn you. Any sin will condemn you to death. I'm not in any way sort of downplaying something. You know, it's a little white lie. It's just that. But there are sins of omission where we just didn't do something we were obligated or should have done, and there's a sin there. There are sins of impulse. Perhaps just in an impulsive moment, you said something, you shared something that you should have kept in confidence. That's a sin. You didn't plan it, but it just came out. Perhaps you just got angry in the moment. Now, if you're getting angry every other moment, uh, every hour of every day, get some help. You have a serious problem. But the impulse things, we can sin an impulse. I'm not talking about that here. It's not a sin of omission. It's not a sin of impulse. This is a sin of premeditation. There are sins, and in one sense, now again, all of them cause Christ to die, and all of them will condemn us, but a sin of premeditation. You planned evil, and some people do that. Some people plan, perhaps people have done that against you. They have designed, they've thought about, they've worked out a plan to hurt you, to damage you, to ruin you, to destroy you. Maybe it was to use you for their own whatever purposes, whatever it is. This is what Joseph's brothers were guilty of. Remember they were going to kill him? They thought about it as he's not that long, but he's far off. Then they put him in a pit. Then they sit down and they have a discussion. Why didn't somebody there say, man, this is wrong. This is sinful. They went along with it other than Reuben, but then he upheld the lie afterwards. It was a premeditated sin to sell him to sell him to travelers going to Egypt. They had time. They sat down. Even maybe it wasn't days, but they perhaps had an hour or two, or even after they sold him. Didn't their conscience convict them? Couldn't they have gone after the Ishmaelites and said, listen, we made a mistake. We want to buy him back. This is an impulse. This is an omission. They sold their brother, who was 17 years old. They sold their brother to wicked, secular men who sold him to wicked people in Egypt at 17 years old. And then they, because sin's never alone, it's never sin singular, there's always sin plural. Then they came up with a lie, and then they deceived their father, and then they watched their father suffer on and on and on for years and years. It seems like they never had a press on their conscience to go make it right to tell dad the truth. Even when they come before Joseph, remember, and they're counting about, because they don't know it's him, and he's asking about their family, and they tell him the story that one of our brothers was killed. They're still lying. 13 years later. Can I just say to you, some people in your life and some people perhaps in mine have sinned against us by omission, or by impulse, but perhaps you've had it and you are sitting here today just overwhelmingly crushed because somebody premeditated evil against you. It was overt, it was in purpose. They planned it, they worked it, they thought about how to hurt you. The pain, the loss, the cost to you right now is overwhelming and devastating that someone would specifically want you to lose, want you to hurt, want you to suffer, want to use you, abuse you in some way, in some twisted, sinful way. 
Perhaps it made them feel better about themselves, perhaps whatever. But they brought a vindictive, bitter sort of thing against you. I look at Joseph and I think, how'd you get to that place? He's 30 years old. He's been living under the consequences of this evil for 13 years. How does he get to that place at 30 years of age to say, you did mean evil against me, but God meant it for good? And what do you do right now if you're sitting here right now when someone has done evil? You have been in their crosshairs and they have deliberately brought evil into your life to hurt you, to damage you. What do you do with that? Some of us, and I think it's the same here in Alberta as in Ontario through this whole pandemic, some have been very hurt. Hurt by the government, hurt by big pharma. Some of you parents and our own, our own grandkids, some of them who are teenagers, have been incredibly hurt by the losses over the last two years in their life. And some of you are carrying wounds and hurts that you believe, and I'm not saying right or wrong, I'm just saying it's a reality that the government and the, the pharmaceutical companies or, or whoever it is, they have intentionally brought evil into your life and brought hurt. What do you do with that? The loss of freedoms, the restrictions, whatever it is, maybe it's impacted your business, your job, you've lost income, you've lost a job. Some of you it's been a company, a co-worker, some of you it's been a neighbor, or maybe a boss, an employee, a fellow worker. Some of you perhaps it's been sadly a parent or, or even maybe a child or a friend or an uncle. Or sadly maybe it's been a youth pastor or a pastor or someone has brought evil into your life. How do you deal with it? What do you do when someone's done evil? Well, our next two points will hopefully help you. So there are evil people who do evil things. That's a reality in our sinful world. My second point from this verse is, but God, but God is always working his plan for our good. There are evil people who do evil things, but God is always working his plan for our good. Romans 8, 28. For those who love the Lord, he's working all things for our good. Joseph here says, you meant evil against me, but God. Aren't you thankful for the but God statements in scriptures? But God meant it for good. You meant evil, you meant destruction, you meant pain, you meant loss. But God, you see the view of God? This is why, and I know it's true in this church, in our church, we preach a lot about the sovereignty of God. Because evil happens in this world is a, a wicked world and, and all sorts of trials and difficulties come and people need to have a high view of God. They need to understand the sovereignty of God. Somehow, and listen, I'm not making Joseph a hero. There's one hero in the Bible and there's no man other than Jesus Christ. God himself is the hero. But God has poured out mercy in this young man's life so that at 17, what was he thinking when he was sitting in the pit? What was he thinking as he's being carried away by the Ishmaelites, probably tied up? Can you, I, I can't imagine what he was thinking. My brothers just did this to me. What was he thinking in Potiphar's house in the first early months of us being a slave? What was he thinking when he was accused of sexual immorality, of sexually assaulting Potiphar's wife, when he did the exact opposite? Somehow God in his grace and kindness, gave Joseph a high view of God's sovereignty. Somewhere in those 13 years, Joseph came to grips with this, that God is working a plan. 
He's working a plan for my good and for his glory. People did evil, but Joseph, listen, when somebody does evil to us, we get fixated on them, don't we? If if this happened to you right now, that's all you can think about. We've struggled at times with our church in that, in our own lives, where stuff has happened and people come against you, and it can dominate every conversation 24 hours a day. We get fixated on it. And the call here is what Joseph did. He got his eyes off his brothers and the evil they did, and he got his eyes on Jesus, on God. Now, what Joseph did is he submitted himself to God's plan. He submitted himself to God's plan. He submitted himself to the reality that I don't see it, but God's working everything for my good. We need to submit ourselves. We need to humble ourselves. Now, before I describe that a little bit more, I just want to say, listen, if you're in a situation right now, I'm not saying you stay under some evil someone's doing to you. It is right. It is just and it's biblical to call out sin. To say that's wrong, that's evil, that's sinful, that needs to stop. I'm not saying stay under that. I'm not saying just submit yourself and take whatever's coming. God's a God of justice, God's a God of righteousness. And so it's right to go to the elders of this church and tell them the truth of what is happening. It's right to tell the friend. It's right to call the police. I have called the police numerous times in our church when we found out things are happening. We've called CAS in Canada and Ontario. That's a children's aid society. We, we, it's right to hold people accountable. It's right to stop abuse, to stop attack. Listen, listen, women, if you're living in an abusive situation, I am not at all calling you to stay under that. I'm calling you to go to your elders, to talk to a pastor, to call it what it is. Sin is sin. We are told in Galatians 6 to talk to each other in humility about sin. The church has given Matthew 18 as a process to deal with sin. So I'm just encouraging you in that. This idea of submitting to God's sovereignty is not saying, I just have to take it and take it and take it. No, no. And even if we forgive someone, it's still proper at times to have consequences. I forgive you, but I'm still calling the police. I forgive you, but I'm still talking to the elders. That's all true. I'm not saying that. But when you have done all that you can do, and maybe it's in your past, or maybe now you've just done all, and you're still now living with all the fallout of that evil, this is where I'm saying now is the time to say by faith, by faith, by faith, I'm gonna trust God's word and God's promises and God's character that he's working all this for my good, to conform me to the image of his son, to trust him. Listen, listen, listen to me. Not to trust your feelings. We're, we're developing a soul care ministry, a biblical counseling ministry, and we've learned from Hope Oakville in, in, in Toronto, and, and, and one of the key things is we all get messed up is the engine on the train is not feelings. It's the truth of the word of God. It's not how you feel. It doesn't matter. How you feel may not change for a long time. We're not talking about how you feel or what seems right to you. We're talking about the truth, the truth of God's word and who he is. In the pain, in the hurt, in the rejection, in the evil that's been done to you, eyes off self, eyes off that person who did evil, eyes on Jesus the truth of who he is. Can I just encourage you, 
Because it's our tendency in our flesh, when someone does evil to us, we want to do evil back to them. We want to get even. Our country loves the payback movies. They sell big. Why? Because it just seems right in our flesh. They deserve it. It's not the way of the Lord. Can I, can I encourage you, if you're on social media, I've never yet seen anything resolved on social media. Never. They said this about me. I just had this happen to me just recently by a, a pastor in, the, in Ontario and, and some really awful, awful things. That I, and it wells up inside. I want to post my thing. Now, I'm not on social media other than to follow our kids, but I don't think I've ever posted anything. But I wanted to. I wanted to defend. I wanted to tell them. That's not going to resolve anything. Can I just encourage you to fight the flesh and just don't give in to that? At times we can explain what we did as the elders team. We have a thing. We'll explain what we did, but we're not going to defend. Because when we get into defending, we t- tend to be in the flesh. Submit yourself to God's provision. Submit yourself to God's care. Submit yourself to God's direction. Submit yourself to God's plan. Submit yourself to God's sovereignty. He knows exactly what's going on. He can bring to light anything he wants to. He can take anybody out. He can reveal whatever he wants to reveal. This is what Joseph did. He did it. He did it. As a young man, he did it. Now, now submitting ourselves to, to God in all of this, when, when the evil's been done to us, it doesn't mean the pain will necessarily go away. I'm not saying that. It doesn't mean the tears will stop flowing. It doesn't mean your reputation will come back. It doesn't mean the relationship will necessarily be restored. It doesn't mean the sinner who's done this will stop sinning. What does it mean? It means you will experience all God has for you in conforming you to the image of his son in bringing good into your life despite the circumstances. You'll have a peace that what? Passes understanding. You'll have a joy that's indescribable that everybody thinks you're crazy but there's just this contentment in the Lord and his sovereignty Even while you're suffering, even under persecution, even under pain, even under loss, in some way it's a mystery. You say, how can that happen? I don't know. I really don't. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways, says Isaiah 55. I don't have to figure it out. I'm just not that smart. I don't know the future. All I know is God's word says he will work everything for our good, and he's doing that right now in whatever has happened in your life. We may not see it this week. We may not see it this month. We may not see it this year. We may not see it in this life. We will see it one day, guaranteed, guaranteed. I was just counseling with a guy just a week before I left, and young man, his wife had two affairs on him, found out just three or four months ago, and she's in counseling. God's really transforming her. I sat with him, and it was just overwhelming. He said to me, I wouldn't wish this on anybody, but I wouldn't change a thing because I have found an intimacy with Christ I never knew before. That's just a few months after having a rock dropped on his life because he saw the word of God is true and the character of God and the promises of God. One of our elders is a man of great, great faith. He so helps me, encourages me, and we were 15 and a half years of doing this, church in a box and schools and all of that. And so we had a long journey in that. And 
we finally bought land and we were working for two years to, to design and we had everything done. Architecture, we worked with the city, it was a headache. Two years, spent $700,000 just to get architect, engineering, city, everything satisfied. We had people on site, they were removing the earth and starting to build our building, which was gonna be just a wonderful building. All the financing was in place and then the Ministry of Environment in Toronto, ooh, Toronto. And, <laughs> And they said, you need your neighbor next door to give you a letter, just a letter. Literally, we confirmed one sentence that said, I'm okay with your 100-year stormwater plan. It's like, well, that can't be hard. It's a 100-year storm. It's not the normal storm. It's in, there, was no, there was no river running through our property, anything like that. It was just, for some reason, and our city said, we don't know why. This has never happened before. But Toronto wants this. We went to the neighbor. He wouldn't give it to us. He wanted our land. We had eight acres, and his, his, his father had severed it off and sold it to a church before us and then sold the land to us, and he wanted it back to develop it. And for two years, we tried to get just one sentence from him that said, I'm fine with your 100-year stormwater plan. He wouldn't give it. We sent all the trades home, and we stopped the whole thing. We bought an older church building as a temporary solution. It wasn't big enough. We had three services, had a leaky roof, and has asbestos in it and all of that. And I remember I struggled so much, and our elder said, this one elder with faith, he said, listen, man, we know one day we're going to thank the Lord for this, so let's choose today to thank the Lord for it. And I gotta tell you, it took me quite a while to get there. It really did. But can I tell you, we sold our land a few years ago, and we're living in this old building. We're paying hundreds of thousands to get the asbestos out, and the roof still leaks, and we are beyond thankful. We're debt-free, and especially these last two years has been such a joy to not have to carry that. Listen, the challenge today, listen, the challenge right now for you, what is your focus? Are you fixated on that evil, on that person, on that problem, on that trial? Eyes off that, eyes on Jesus. He's trustworthy, he's true, he's sovereign. He knows the end from the beginning. Perhaps a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, an ex-friend, a spouse, a parent, a child, an uncle, whatever it is, can I just say to you, but God, but God, but God. God is working. God is working. Joseph says in chapter 45, verses seven to eight, God sent me before you that I would be here to care for all of you. He sees God's sovereignty in all of this. He understands God's plan. So by faith, he chose to trust in God. Can I encourage you today? By faith, by faith, by faith. Remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 11 about faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Listen, the conviction of things not seen. You can't see how this could be used for your good. Faith is believing God that he will do what he said he will do. The third sort of point, theological truth I want to bring out of this. There are evil people doing evil in our lives. God's always working his plans for our good. Here's the third truth. His plans triumph over their plans. His plans will always triumph over their plans. They plan evil. Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God sent me ahead. God knew years and years in advance there'd be a famine, and he wanted our family to survive, and God's plan was that I would go into slavery, and all these awful things would happen. You had nothing but evil in your heart for years and years. Listen, in the 13 years between when they sold him and when they came and met him, they never had a change of heart. 13 years, not one of them said, I'm gonna tell dad the truth. 
Joseph's probably alive and we should go find him. Not one of them said, I- I'm going on a trip. I'm going to go to Egypt to see if I can find him and buy him out of. Not one of them had a change of heart. They were evil and did evil. Nothing ever changed for them, but Joseph didn't fixate on it. Joseph saw the bigger plan of God, even though he didn't understand it until now. Joseph chose, listen, Joseph chose to release the evil done against him to the Lord, trusting that God's got something that's going to triumph over all the awful things that have happened to me. In my reading a little while ago, I was going through Psalms, and I read in Psalm 105, Verses 17 and 18. Psalm 105, 17 and 18. They sent a man, he had sent a man ahead of them, talking about Joseph, who was sold as a slave. The text says this, verse 18 of Psalm 105. His feet were hurt with fetters, and his neck was put in a collar of iron. You don't read that in Genesis. His feet were put in fetters, in in stocks, and his neck had a collar of iron. It seems like probably when Potiphar put him in jail, he put him in the stocks. He put an iron collar. We don't know how long Joseph had that, but his feet were hurt by it, probably his neck. He suffered. He suffered. All because his brothers were angry and sinful. And yet he released it. He released it. He left it with the Lord. He trusted God. Somehow he just knew God will work it for my good and his glory. Somehow God will take this evil. There seems to be no way. I can't see any good of all of this. I've, I've, I've lost my whole family. I've lost everything. I've lost my freedom. I'm suffering physically. I've been accused of things I didn't do. But he didn't focus on that. In the end, he had such a view of God, he just said, I trust him, I trust him. Can I ask you this morning, do you trust him? Not because you feel it, not because you think it, but because God's word says he is trustworthy. Can I encourage you, if you're suffering under some evil today, to release it to the Lord today? We teach in our church about horizontal and vertical forgiveness. It's a way that sort of helps us understand it. Horizontal, you may not be restored with that person. Maybe they're dead. Maybe they're gone. There's maybe no chance. I don't think you're restored horizontally in relationship until the guilty person comes and owns their sin and asks forgiveness. But you, you don't wait for that to happen. The vertical is what you do right away. The vertical is you release it to the Lord. A debt has been occurred to you, occurred to, and you just release it to the Lord. You, you stop holding that against them. You, you, you leave it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You, you leave it with him. Joseph obviously did this. God, I hand it all to you. Uh, this person doesn't deserve it, but I don't deserve the forgiveness I've gotten from you. Colossians tells us that. We can forgive because of all that we've been forgiven. Lord, Lord, I release it to you. I release them to you, the evil done to me. I choose by faith to trust that you are going to work this evil for my good and your glory. And can I just say to you, Jesus is our example even in this. Remember as he hung on the cross with nails in his hands and nails in his feet, his back ripped raw from the, the scourging, his head bleeding from the crown of thorns. Every breath was utterly agonizing. And on the cross, one of his sayings was, Father, what? Forgive them. 
Those people, this horizontal, they weren't, re- nothing was there. He's releasing it. He, he's like, Father, I, I, there's sin against me. I leave it with you. I can trust you in this. He gave us an example that by faith, you and I, by faith, you and I can just step out and say, none of this makes sense and I can't see it for the life of me, but I'm going to choose to believe God, his character, his word, and his promises that all things work together for my good. Let's pray. Father, we pray you would help us in this. I think some listening right now have been hurt in ways that I can't imagine. Perhaps nobody else knows. Maybe their loved ones know, maybe friends Maybe they're a small group, but some are suffering here in ways that they've never told anybody. Our flesh tells us this is not true, to not believe this. The world tells us to get even. But your word tells us that you are sovereign, and you are good, and you only do good. And in some way, we can't even fathom. You take all of the evil and all of the good, and all of the evil and all of the trials, all of the suffering, illnesses, disease, you take the loss, the broken relationships, somehow in your sovereign plan, you work all of that for our good and your glory. Would you increase and strengthen our faith today to stand firmly on that, to believe that, to claim that, for that is the truth of your word. And as we do that, would you heal, would you restore, would you mend, would you bind up, would you bless each one? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.